This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Okay, right, boys. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and what a beautiful morning. And at least the sunshine is actually um, shining through here as well, or is that just the mirrors? It is. <laughs> Who knows? Um, welcome to Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Rosie Goldsmith, and uh, I work a lot with, I'm a journalist, but I work a lot with um, writers, international writers, uh, translated into English. And if you've been reading the blurb for this event, um, it says you are going to be meeting two of Europe's literary superstars. Now, this blurb does not exaggerate. Um, don't tell any of the other European literary superstars. <laughs> there are quite a few in Edinburgh, um, as you know, for, the, for these couple of weeks. But these, and I can say this hand on heart, these are two of the most exceptional writers I have ever read. From Iceland and Sweden stroke Austria, we have Steve Sem Sandberg. Please give Steve a huge round of applause. <laughs> And it was his birthday yesterday, so we can sing happy birthday at the end. <laughs> and this is Sjorn. I'm from Iceland, and please welcome Sjorn as well. And it's his birthday on August the 27th. Yes, yes. <laughs> so doing quite well. Um, Anyway, let's settle down. We'll have a nice, we're going to have a, few, a couple of readings and we're going to talk about their books. Now, the, the wonderful thing about these events and how they're curated is there is always a reason for the writers, these two writers or whoever, to be in the same event. And these two writers, um, not only are they exceptional writers, the top writers in their countries, um, prize winning sort of as we call it in this country, Booker Prize-winning writers um, and the equivalent in their countries. They, actually, these books that we're looking at today do have um, themes that we can talk about together because um, they're both about young men. They're both about, or boys, at a particular and very key time in the history of the countries of Iceland and of Austria. Um, 1918, the end of the, uh, the, the First World War in Iceland, and um, late 30s, 1938 onwards in Austria, which, as you can imagine, is also a key time in history. Um, the, other, the other thing they have in common also, both their um, protagonists are outcasts in society. Both are, in a way, heartbreaking stories looking at um, prejudices, major prejudices in society also, um, you know, both are particularly about how these young people experience this change and the aftermath and the consequences for the countries and the cultures after these extraordinary and terrible events have happened. So the two books we have to talk about is we have Moonstone um, from, by Sion and we have this, um, as you can see, the, even the weight is different, but you could, they, they're, they're Mine both... Mine is bigger than yours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> see, this is how writers talk, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the conversations you and, have. And, 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 and as, 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 as the sweet girls say, the size doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, another, another rather fun, fun thing that I would like to introduce to this is that Sion is a mine of information about Iceland. He knows the whole of Icelandic history, including really important things like when the first coffee machine was introduced to Reykjavik. So mm. it was 1952. Yeah, the first, Can you tell us a little bit the about that? The first espresso machine. The first espresso yeah. machine. In but, other words, um, real coffee. Yes. Before that, we had like all sorts of coffee. English coffee. Uh, coffee, was in, <laughs> coffee was introduced. I think coffee was introduced in the, in the, in the 18th century. Until then, we were like uh, big uh, tea drinkers. But with coffee, things changed. And... Uh, and uh, we are still suffering the consequences of <laughs> being too hyper. <laughs> and I imagine the reason you moved to Vienna from Sweden is that because of the coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I always bring back when I go to Sweden, I bring the, the Viennese uh, coffee with me. Yeah, kind of. Like this. I but I've actually been to the place where the coffee machine in Reykjavik mm. was installed in 1952. Not that early, but a little bit yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. It was the only place in, in Reykjavik where you could get, get a really good cup of yes, coffee. Yes, yes, yes. For 30 years, um, it was yeah, the only yeah. place where you could get Into an Into the 80s or something, yes. in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> we could continue on this theme. <laughs> I'm going to rein it back in. <laughs> um, we're going to talk first um, a little bit about 
research and about these two books because um, Nation, very briefly, um, they've both been here to the festival several times before. You've been here five or six times? No, no, no. Oh, two. two, two oh, one, one. And you've been here four times. This is the fourth time. Fourth time, <laughs> excellent, right. Well, I've been here, this is my first time. So oh, really? Yes. Welcome. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> you can interview me now. <laughs> um, my impressions of, which are, which are very good. Um, Alexander McCall-Smith likes talking about shoes. That's something I discovered. Um, now, this book, Moonstone by Sion, this is um, the fifth, no, the fourth novel that's been translated into English, but you've written very many novels um, after starting off your life writing poetry at a very young age. Um, you are, I think, uh, what you called a surrealist poet. Um, and I don't think anybody ever uses that term these days. But um, you then went on to writing novels, which was quite a surprise, I think, for you, wasn't it? That you were going to become a novelist. You didn't expect that you would become a novelist in your early life. No, I, I started as a teenage surrealist. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a famous American horror film called I Was a Teenage Werewolf. <coughs> I Was a Teenage Surrealist. Uh, and uh, with surrealism comes a, a boundless belief in the poem mm. and in poetry as a transformative element in life. <laughs> so uh, I was definitely going to be one of the transformers of life through poetry. But uh, I think, you know, in uh, 87, uh, I somehow uh, became a little bit tired of the burden that comes with having to transform life all the time through poetry. So I tried to write a novel, and, and I discovered that I really enjoyed working with characters and situations. Mm. And uh, since then I've written, I think, this, I think the, this is the eighth or ninth novel. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think everything I, I write is really marked by the fact that I, 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 uh, that I schooled myself uh, uh, through poetry. You know. Which is why these novels will never get any bigger. Because, which is the, the wonderful thing, they are little books of poetry. Well, yes, they're not big. They're, they're quite small, most, most of my novels. And uh, yes, it's probably the discipline that comes from, uh, from writing, writing poetry. Uh, but, uh, you know, I might write a bigger book one day. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, it will be a... Happy occasion, I think. You know? I, I really look forward to that, <laughs> yeah, too. I'd, yeah. I'd love, to, love yeah. to see you writing a big, long novel. Now, the four books that have been translated into English, which I'm, um, you, you may well have read, hopefully, The Whispering Muse was the first, and then The Blue Fox, um, From the Mouth of the Whale, and this one is called Moonstone, The Boy Who Never Was, and they've all been translated by Victoria Cribb. Now, the, the wonderful thing is about these... We wouldn't have these books with us if we didn't have these amazing translators and you're both blessed with mm -hmm. extraordinarily good translators your first translator was sarah diaz mm -hmm. um for the emperor of lies mm -hmm. and this is anna patterson yeah. uh, from the swedish and victoria crib um you and victoria sort of work in tandem don't you almost you 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 consult each other um, when she's translating, when she's also a scholar of old Icelandic, so that's quite useful. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I, I'm really fortunate with, with, uh, with Victoria. Uh, she's an amazing translator. Uh, the first novel she translated was uh, uh, The Blue Fox. And The Blue Fox is a story that takes place in, in the 19th century. And when I was working on the style of that novel, uh, I, uh, I, I, I was inspired by the uh, great romantic uh, <coughs> national uh, poets of, of, of Iceland, and I, I use their language uh, uh, as an inspiration for, for many passages in the book. And I was very fortunate uh, with Victoria because it turned out that she had actually written her, her thesis uh, mm. uh, as an Icelandic student in Iceland on one of those poets. So she was ready for me, and uh, since then it's been a, a wonderful relationship. She's really amazing, and um, I keep, you know, I, you know, uh, people sometimes ask me if uh, if I, I, I take into consideration that the books will be translated when I when I write them, but I obviously never do that, and they just become more and more difficult for Victoria, and she just becomes more and more amazing in, in her work. Yeah. And how about your translations? I mean, you started off. Um, that you've had two 
your two uh, novels translated mm. because Steve is you, you're a journist um, uh, no I'm not actually a writer but everybody you're not, has you're not to a real earn writer. their keep <laughs> you have to earn their keep and many do it as translators I did it as as a uh, as a newspaper yes. paper editor actually more, yes. than, more than a journalist and what are your what are your other languages uh, my other languages so Swedish German English and you were translating as well you've been translating I've been from translating a little bit but that is mm -hmm. 25 years ago right. uh, but but very very little um, you, you started off writing science fiction uh, well, 1970s I was, you both started about the same time writing it yeah but I was a very young person then well, he I was, mean he was a, he was a teenage surrealist yeah I was a teenage <laughs> I don't know what I was really <laughs> So I think I think that it's important that you you when you when you go back to, in your life that you actually recognize that what you've written is actually you recognize that it's been written by you and there are a few novels which I I hardly recognize as being mm. written by myself mm. so I cannot kind of skip them. Mm. Um, so uh, we so, won't talk so about I, I, no mm. let's not. So I go back to the novels that are actually having memories of having actually written and and that's um that's 1987 i think my first novel was published and <coughs> has, has that been translated into not English? not no. yet well i think i mean what happens as you know is that um well you became famous in the english-speaking world mm. for a novel that you'd written in 2009 yes. the emperor of lies mm. and that was then translated 2011 so quite often there's a gap anyway with translation mm. but that book mm. um an unforgettable book, and mm -hmm. it won the, the so-called Booker Prize, the August Prize, mm. in um, Austria. So why do you think that book really hit the mark? Because it became very unusually from a historical novel about Nazis, and um, it was about the Wuj ghetto. It became an international bestseller. You know, it's, it's always difficult to tell, but I think the, the topic of, of, of that book, the theme, was interesting to many people because it actually takes place in one of the Nazi-administered ghettos of Poland. But usually when you talk about the Second World War and the um, Holocaust and so on, it's always from the angle of, of, um, of the perpetrator and vic the victim in a very, very, very easy way, you can yes. say. Uh, it's almost in, black and white. It's always black and white. And of course, it was black and white because the Nazis really were the perpetrators and the Jews were the victims. But the, the, the actual evil things that the Nazis did, they set up this ghetto and they, 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 they made the, the, the Jews administer their own extinction. And when the Jews have to administer their own extinction, of course, this kind of you, you get in a slippery plane or something yeah. like that. You, you, the, the, Jew, the, the people there inside the ghetto would have to make decisions uh, in order to survive that that were not so good. So how do you deal with this? And of course, from the from the Jewish side of everything. This wasn't actually dealt with because it was a little bit complicated with Rumkowski, who was the, you know. The, the so, book is so basically about Rumkowski, it's um, about who is the leader he, of the ghetto. He is the, the leader the of the ghetto, and he is the one who's going to administer the, the, the extinction of those Jews. Mm. And, and he Jewish. does, and he does. So is he, and somebody survives, most of the people do die. So, so how, are you, how are you morally dealing with this? Right? And I think that is, the, that is the reason why it really got into the heart of many people, because suddenly you, you didn't feel that this was uh, a very easy subject, so to speak. This, this is something that you have to deal with in an in a, in a, in a individual to individual basis and not, not as only as a historical fact. And this is your, your um, first novel. You were working on that for, for a long time as well, too. I mean, yeah. the, the, this is um, The Chosen Ones, which has just come out in English. Um, and this is um, the, the one that's been translated by Anna Patterson. And interesting enough, as far as the... Um, I mean, this is so... For, for me, as a reader, this is so harrowing. This... I mean, in a way, The, the Emperor of Lies was, was heartbreaking. And this book, which is about euthanasia, the Nazi program of euthanasia. I just wonder how, when you're both research, because you're both historical novelists, how you research these, how you feel about the research, because you both do, personally, a lot of research. Mm. 
I think in, in, in my case, I, I was finishing The Emperor Lies and I was actually living in Vienna, so I, I, I got to know this story while writing the, yes. the previous book. And, and the thing is that, that this book is about, um, I mean, the Nazis has, had many, many enemies. The outer enemies were the Jews, but they also had their inner enemies, their enemies within. All the people that were, I mean, homosexuals who were uh, maybe had some sort of handicap, uh, whatever, uh, mental or physical. Uh, they were also su supposed to be taken out of the system because they were they were not racially impure, but they were they were defect, mm -hmm. and all defections had to be erased. So they set up a clinic in Vienna to take care of the children. And what what happened to me? I was I was in Vienna. I worked on the other book, and I suddenly got in, into my lap, literally into my lap, the the the, the register, the patient register of all these children. It's called the, the, the Totenbuch. The, the Book of Death. The, the Book of Death. And it was all these children, and no, nobody exempt from the academic community had ever done anything to give these children back their faces, their normalities, their lives, uh, their destinies cut short, so to speak. So, so I just kind of started to sort out these individual destinies, and, and then out came the novel. It is a very great book. Thank you. It is an incredibly moving book. I don't know whether you, it's only just out, so you probably haven't had time to read it yet. But there is, I don't think I've ever been as troubled and disturbed by a book. But your beautiful writing, which we'll talk about later, sort of lifts it into a different, different dimension. Now, you also have done <coughs> so much research. I mean, you're both writing, you, neither of you writes about modern times. But, um, they, of course, the consequences uh, seep mm. into modern times. And again, with this particular extraordinary story, the, the Spanish epidemic in Iceland, how did the Spanish flu arrive in Iceland? Uh, well, and how uh, did you discover that yeah, particular fact? Yeah, well, regard, regarding research uh, uh, and uh, where, where, where the stories come from, uh, uh, I think I can say that, uh, uh, that I, I have just... Uh, I've just uh, uh, just uh, just learned to trust my curiosity. Mm. So it might be a photograph I see, or or a little passage here, or something there, that just looks exciting to me, and I put it aside, and then I just start like you know uh, a good hamster, you know, uh, <laughs> gathering and collecting whatever has. I come across that has to deal with it. I've now got this image of you as a hamster. You know, I'm not yes, going to, yes. to get rid of it. I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then over time, you know, I, I I just fill up like these folders and 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 uh, computer drives of of material that I have no clue if I'm going to use or not. Mm. It's just like you know the urge to collect it. Mm. And uh, for example, at the moment, I'm collecting everything I find on the Hollywood Monster Man. The, the actors who uh, were inside all the gorilla costumes and monster costumes. <laughs> There's something fascinating about this role. And I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm collecting this, but uh, I'm sure there is a great story there, and I will discover it one day. And we'll see you in a couple of years, and we'll talk about that here at a the story from A story told from inside the gorilla costume. <laughs> <laughs> um, inside the Spiegel. But in this case, uh, I was actually working on a novel on the history of the spiritualist movement in Iceland. And, uh, and uh, the spiritualist movement in Iceland uh, really came into force after, after the Spanish flu had, uh, had uh, ravaged uh, Reykjavik because there was a great demand for uh, conversations with the dead after the Spanish influenza. And the same thing happened uh, here after the First World War. Uh, the mediums, mediums were stars because they had access to all the people who had died in the battlefields. Mm. Uh, and when I was doing this research, I came across a, a photograph of a, of a, of a, of a young woman. Uh, she was sitting in a, she, she, was, she, was, she was under the wheel of a wonderful car at the edge of the lake in Reykjavik. The photo was taken probably 1920, 23. And it said that this woman, uh, as a, that this woman Katrin uh, Fjellstedt, that she had been uh, a driver for the doctors uh, during the days of the Spanish influenza in Reykjavik. 
And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful photograph of this woman in a, in a big uh, leather overcoat with a, with a cap, sitting very confident under the wheel of this big uh, overline, I think the cars were called. And, uh, and I, I just put it aside. And then I started collecting everything I, I, I could lay my hands on mm -hmm. regarding the Spanish flu in Reykjavik. And the Spanish flu came to Reykjavik at the, uh, uh, in, uh, in the beginning of November 1918. And uh, what happened over, 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 over those weeks uh, in the autumn of 1918 in, in, in Iceland was incredible. The volcano Katla started erupting uh, late October. The Spanish flu came to Reykjavik. And on the 1st of December, we became a sovereign country. Mm. And the so, Spanish flu was brought by the Danes. And the, the, and the Spanish were, flu so came, came on a ship from Denmark, yeah. So you, you, but you, your independence was from Denmark? Your independence was also from Denmark, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it was amazing material. And I thought, you know, how, how come uh, no Icelandic author has ever, ever written a novel taking place in those weeks? Mm. So I started digging into it, and uh, all of a sudden I realized, well, all this material is free, you know? The structure is here. We start with a volcanic eruption, and we end with, a, with the independence, <laughs> you know? There's very little work for the author to do except write the book. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you know, uh, I realized that I had actually uh, uh, been collecting uh, uh, material on the, on the history of cinema in, in Iceland, or the early days of cinema. Uh, Icelanders became uh, uh, very avid cinema goers from uh, the beginning of cinema, so 1913 when the feature film is introduced, Icelanders started going to the cinema. And even in the year 1918, when there was of course great hardship, not only because of the Spanish flu, but also because of, uh, because of shortages of coal and food and everything we had to import from abroad, in that year we imported 90 films. So there was a premiere of a film in Reykjavik every third day in 1918 in, in, in a town of 15,000 people. So all of those things just came together and I thought, well, now I'll write the novel and here it is. Mm. And the, the third strand of um, research, which is very interesting, because that pertains to the, your, your, your protagonist, Mani, who's 16, um, starts the novel, he is gay. And that was another part of the historical research as well. Was looking at the looking at the, if you like, the the, the, the treatment, the social aspect of homosexuality in uh, yeah. in Iceland. I had, uh, I also had a file on, on the history of of of, uh, of queerness or homosexuality in Iceland, uh, stretching stretching far back. And uh, uh, when I started looking for someone who could actually carry the story, who could take us through those days. I, I realized I needed someone who was, in a way, detached. He had to be de detached mm. from the tragedy, mm. you know, mm. uh, because otherwise the character is just swallowed up by mm. the horrible events and there is no mm. story. Mm. There's just crying. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I made him an orphan. Uh, he's dys dyslexic, he's unemployed, mm. Poor boy. and, uh, <laughs> and uh, to top it, uh, uh, I realized he was, uh, he was queer and, uh, and uh, absolutely living on the outskirts of society and in the shadows. Mm. And yeah, that was the final, final puzzle to make life difficult for him. But then he also has cinema, so he's really, he lives for cinema. Mm. Now, both boys in both um, novels do survive, which is, if mm. you like, in speech once, the happy ending for mm. both of them. Mm. And your, your boy is um, Adrian Ziegler. Mm. Um, so we've got Adrian and we've got um, Mani. And I was wondering, too, whether we could just have a little reading from, um, from both of you. If you. Have you got a, a short reading? We just hear a little mm. bit about Mani and then um, maybe just a little bit about Adrian. And then we can um, just talk a little yeah. bit more, because I'd like to get to know them a little bit, I think. So, the, yeah, I'll read from the very beginning. So, uh, yeah, Mauni is this 16-year-old uh, kid I've just described, living in Reykjavik with his great-aunt. Uh, and uh, He's not his grandmother. No, oh. she's his great-aunt. So when I reviewed it, I got it wrong. Yeah, but she's... Uh, Sorry about that. She's, uh, <laughs> she is the... Well, she, she's... She's the worst grandmother. She really doesn't, Thank you. you know, she, she, she doesn't want uh, children, you know. She's been living alone all her life and she's uh, given this kid to 
to take care of. So he's living with this, I think she's his great aunt. Okay. Yeah. The great aunt in the attic. Yes, yes, the great aunt in the attic. <laughs> but uh, I'll read from the very beginning of the, of the novel where uh, Maune has been uh, meeting uh, one of his uh, regulars. He's, uh, yeah, that's how he earns money to be able to go to the cinema. He, he services, uh, services uh, uh, man in Reykjavik. Uh, but his idol, is uh, a, a young girl, a teenage girl, or she's a little bit older than, than, than he is, she's probably 18, uh, a, a, a girl called Sola. Is she, in fact, the woman you saw in the photograph? She's the woman I saw in the photograph, so she, she's here in the book. She is the main, main uh, female character in the book. So this is how Mauni sees her. She appears on the brink like a goddess risen from the depths of the sea, silhouetted against the backdrop of a sky ablaze with the volcanic fires of Katla. A girl like no other, dressed in a black leather overall that accentuates every detail it is intended to hide. With black gloves on her hands, a domed helmet on her head, goggles over her eyes, and a black scarf over her nose and mouth. The girl pulls down the scarf and pushes up the goggles onto her helmet. Her lips are as red as blood. Her eyes ringed with coal that makes her powdered skin appear whiter than white. Solberg Guðbjörsdóttir, Sola G. The boy whispers, I knew it. His lips form the name of her double, Musidora. It's been more than a year since the boy discovered this girl. As if for a split second, he had been granted X-ray vision and he could see her as she really was. He had already known her name, where she lived, who her parents were, the company she kept, for they are contemporaries, and in a town of 15,000, those of the same age cannot help but be aware of one another. But her world was quite out of reach, far above his rung of society. So he had paid no more attention to her than others of her kind. He had made his discovery at a Saturday matinee screening of the vampires at the old cinema. He was sitting in his usual spot, feeling irked by the whispers and giggles emanating from a group of kids his own age in the better seats in the front. But just as he was about to yell at them to pipe down, people were here to enjoy the film, not the noisy petting of bourgeois brats. He heard one of the girls say she was fed up with ruining the show for the others. It was then when the girl stood up to leave that it happened. The instant her shadow fell on the screen, they merged, she and the character of the film. She looked around and the beam of light projected Musidora's features onto her own. The boy froze in his seat, they were identical. Oh, Sola G. <laughs> so she is, the, she is the, yeah, she is the doppelganger of Musidora, the great French actress of, uh, of the silent film era. And, uh, Le Vampire. Le Vampire, and he starts following her around the city and uh, becomes quite obsessed with her. Yes. Wonderful. Beautifully read. Thank you so Thank much. You. Wonderful. Um, now we're going to just hear a little bit about Adrian Siegler, who's actually not Siegler at the particular time he's got his mother's name, I think, Trobosch. Trobosch, yes, yes, that's true. Um, How old is Adrian at this moment? This is about 1937. This will be, uh, it says in the book, January 1941. If it says it in the book, then I it's true. I think it has to be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, actually the beginning of the book, so Adrian, uh, who is um, considered to be a gypsy, uh, there's some gypsy blood in him. So that's why he ends up at the Spiegelgrund clinic where they uh, try to <clears throat> make him into something he is not, right? So this is actually when he arrives. Uh, the chapter is called The Institution. 
They brought him to Spiegelgrund for the first time in January 1941, on a cold, clear winter's morning, when the pale light closest to the ground shimmered with frost. Near the top of the mountain uh, that rose behind the pavillons, Adrian Ziegler remembers seeing the institution's church, its stone green with vad how do you say that? Verdigris? Verdigris? Um, verdigris. Verdigris, sorry. Um, the dome green with verdigris against a blue sky, an unreal blue like that of postcards or color-printed color, color posters. The car stopped just inside the hospital gate in front of the buildings that housed the directorate and the administration. A nurse came to escort him, first to meet the elderly doctor, a grave, pale gentleman in a dark suit, who signed the documents and then to a pavilion to the left of the main entrance where a doctor was waiting to examine him. Another nurse was there as well, and she shouted to him to undress at once and step onto the scales. Adrian would claim that he had no idea who the doctor was until much later. It was only then when he finally saw the medical report and recognized at the signature of Dr. Heinrich Gross that he identified the Spiegelgrün doctor as the man who pursued him for the rest of his life even long after he had been set free. So that basically is the story. Yes. Um, the boy who has done nothing wrong except for having this Zigeunerblut, gypsy blood in him. And that's not even proven. No, no, no. His father is an alcoholic and his mother just has to clean every house in the town so she's never at home. So he's just kind of picked up and put there and spends the time between 10, he's 10, 10 years of age uh, when he's taken in and 15 years old when the war ends. Mm. And that's an entire childhood spent in an institution. So his entire childhood is, is taken away from him. And then he's set free, great. Mm. So what is he going to do? He has no identity. There's n nobody there, he has no parents. So he kind of lives out the rest of his life on the edge of society, doing small kind jobs, stealing a little bit when, when the occasion. And then 30 years later, in 1976, and this is the, the story, he's finally put into arrest and he's going to give a sentence for all the things he has done wrong in life. And he's put into the main prison and in, in, in Vienna, and he's going to see his, um, in German you say Gutachter, what would you say in, in um, English? His supervisor. Or no, not the supervisor, um, the one who's giving, going to give him... Um, the, he's going to sign him off, basically. Uh, yeah, you tell um, what's wrong with him. Yes. Right. So, yeah, it's, who's going to assess him. Yeah, yeah, medical doctor Medi or medical psychiatrist care. or something. Yeah. It's psychiatrist. So he's kind of led through the, to, the, to all the corridors and, 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 and things in the prison and in, into this secluded room and there's this man sitting there uh, and he kind of, the man doesn't look up, he's just looking to, at his papers and he says, sit down and he sits down in front of the, the doctor and he looks up and he says, my name is Heinrich Doc Gross and this is 30 years later, 30 years after the Nazi site the Nazi time. And he says, it's the same doctor as actually tried to kill him during the... And this is true. And this is All a true, true event. Yeah. event. And he has kind of, this, this man has kind of gone into some sort of self-imposed exile after the war. He has kind of sneaked in through the border uh, after the trials, kind of used his context in the Social Democratic Party, get up the ladder again, and he's suddenly being there as a supervisor, psychiatrist, judging young criminals, juvenile offenders, with crimes they often haven't commit, committed, then put them into jail again. And what happens is, actually, in the, you have to read the book to get the entire story, what happened, I can tell you a little bit about it. What happened is that they both recognize each other. So Adrian says, ah, you were in Spiegelgrund. And the doctor says, oh yeah, you were there, right? 
Okay, have you told many people about it? No, a, a few, the boy says, because, because he's still smart, street smart, right? No, just a few friends. Okay, so the doctor says, if you keep silent about this, I will see to it that you will get, you know... You will get let off. Or let off. Nobody they, will they, talk they, about no, it. We will not, they will not be hard on you. They will not be harsh on you. The judge will not be harsh on you. And what, you know what? The actual opposite happens. For the, all these petty crimes, uh, the doctor, uh, this um, Dr. Gross, uh, insists on the gravest possible penalty. 12 years in hard prison with labor for doing nothing except stealing 30,000 shillings. <clears throat> and what on top of that, as a bonus, he actually uses he doesn't even, I mean, write the, the document. He uses the same document that was used in 1944, claiming that Adrian not only is a petty criminal, but he's also homosexual, and racial impure with, with, with this gypsy blood, and, and have been living in an incestuous uh, relations with his sisters. Everything is untrue. But it's just taken out from the Nazi report in 1944, put into the same report in 1976, and everything passes through the, the, the juridical system, and Adrian is put again up, locked down, shut down, in prison in 1976. This is, I mean, atrocious. And when you ask me, how, how is it possible that, you, that I actually sitting in Vienna doing, uh, and deciding to, to spend seven years, the best years of my life, actually, living in exile, I'm a Swede, in Vienna, doing research for this book. This is the reason. It's atrocious. Mm. If nobody writes mm. about it, it would not come to light, right? Yeah. You must read this book, and you must tell everybody about this book. This is original research in one of the most appalling, absolutely atrocious parts of, of history. It's our history. And the shocking thing about Dr. Gross, of course, because mm. this is not, in a way, revealing it, because this is known fact, mm. he, is he never faces justice. And the, the stories, I mean, Adrian is the most extraordinary and wonderful person. Mm. He starts off as this boy who's had nothing in life, really, where he, he um, has poverty. His mother is abused shockingly by his father, who just appears sporadically, is um, always in some kind of alcoholic stupor. Mm. And then he's just, he goes to, this, um, to the Spiegelgrund, which really existed in Vienna, um, just, outside, just outside Vienna. And this, the reason that it was actually created there in Vienna is because Austria and the German annexation was taking place at the time. So it was used as part of the Nazi euthanasia program. Now, over 700 children died as a result of this appalling place. And this is also part of your major research, is that these um, documents about the the body parts and so on of the children that were discovered under this mm. um, building were, were brought to light. You were able to, um, to at least tell people about the story. We knew that a lot of this had gone on, mm. but we didn't know to what degree no. this had gone on. No, that's true. How, what has the reaction been in Austria? Because this has been out now. In, it was published in... Mm. Which year was it published in? It actually came out last year in, last year in yeah, German. Yeah. So what was the reaction? And you know, have people taken this on board? The, 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 the thing is that this was, this was not for a long time. You know, it, it, I mean, Germany and Austria had two different approaches to, to what happened. In Germany, quite quickly, they started to, I mean, dig up everything. And, and because they, they wanted the nation to start anew. In Austria was the first victim. I mean, Austria was the, the first country to be annexed into the, the German that's Empire. That's what the Austrians always said. That's all what the Austrians always say. And, and that's also the reason why we, 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 we won't talk about it. There was also this mentality, we, would, we, we put this to rest. And the thing is about, about the kids in the Spiegelgrund Clinic, that it was, it was not so much, it was not even talked about. And, 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 and the children, nobody knew what actually happened to them. So in 1998, they opened a, a cellar vault out, um, down under the um, Prosektur, you say in, in, in German. Um, um, That's the word uh, I don't know, Prosektur? Uh, yeah, where, where they, where they um, have the anat anatomical, you know. Oh. 
carve up the... Oh, right, okay, so that would be... What's that in English? I lose the word. Help me, Sean. Yeah. And Pardon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Down in the cellar, they f in, a, in a locked door that nobody had a key to, they f actually discovered the body parts of all the remains of all these children. In 1998, and this was a main thing on Austrian television, right? Uh, so, so, so these children didn't actually have a grave they, uh, until in, in the early two, 2000, uh, 2002 or 2003, and it was a beautiful ceremony actually. There were school children from nowadays, they were carrying the pictures of all these children, and they were making like a row, like an alley, like this, uh, and they passed the, 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 the small coffins with the, with, with the children in it, and they put them in a, in a beautiful spot in the, in the Wien, Wiener Zentralfriedhof, the, the, the main cemetery in Vienna. And actually, when I came there, which is, this is really strange, when I came there the first time and started to, to do my research, the birch trees that surrounded the cemetery, the place where these were, were still young trees. And now we're talking about something that happened in, during the period of 1938 to 1945. And the gray was still fresh, where these children were put finally, finally to rest. So then you, then you see the, the magnitude of trying to press down, suppress, not talk about, not even acknowledging the fact that this had happened for about 70 or 80 years. Um, so, so, but nowadays, to answer your question, everybody talks about it. It's a well-known fact, but and they also dealt with it very nicely, I think, in yeah, Austria. Yeah. Well, we must talk about it here too and everywhere. And I think that brings brings us talking about, um, you know, what also with your story, Sean, because it has repercussions all the way up to today. I mean, it, it is particularly the story of Manny, which I know he's a fictional character, but it's based on real events. And, I mean, homosexuality, um, tell us a little bit about money as an, if you like, an outcast in a well, similar way, because he was also discriminated against. And yeah, well, obviously, uh, uh, I mean, the book is, uh, a book is called Moonstone, The Boy Who Never Was. So the, uh, the part of the title, The Boy Who Never Was, refers obviously to the fact that uh, that uh, gay people uh, have never been a part of, of Icelandic history. Uh, we weren't gay until 1978, when uh, the, 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 the Gay Liberation Organization was founded. Then we discovered that it was not only the, the two people that were known in Reykjavik to be sexual deviants, uh, a barber and, uh, and, and, and another, another man who, who had actually gone into exile in, in Copenhagen. Those were the only two known homosexuals in, in Iceland throughout history. But uh, uh, <laughs> obviously... But they were the ones <clears throat> drinking coffee at the... the uh, yes, the barber, of course, drank, drank coffee from the only espresso machine in town. <laughs> uh, no, so it refers to the fact that, that there are invisibles uh, in, 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 in all, of, all of our histories. And, uh, of course, that is one of the, one of the, one of the reasons we have, uh, we have literature, we have uh, storytelling. You know, it is to, to, to read into the silent parts. It's to read into the, the, the spaces, you know, between, uh, between uh, to read between the lines in the official history. Uh, it's as simple as that. So uh, what I discovered, you know, when I, when I was working with this material, you know, I had the plague, I had the Spanish flu, and I had this queer kid trying to survive there and who, in the end, is... Uh, becomes a part of the team that is helping out uh, during the days of, 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 of the plague. Uh, I obviously had something that uh, echoed or, or was like, uh, became, a, 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 had to become a kind of a mirror to a plague that took uh, place uh, much later in history, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, the AIDS epidemic in, in the 80s. And, uh, and uh, uh, I realized that, uh, that uh, his story, Maunis' story in the book, where he is like this queer kid who is rejected by society, but who is, uh, who, who is uh, 
call to action and shows compassion for the very same people that reject him was like the reverse story of what happened in the eight years when, uh, when, uh, when, uh, when gay men who were definitely a, a part of us uh, fell horribly ill and were uh, rejected even in their illness, uh, were demonized, uh, they, were, they were blamed for, for, for having fallen, fallen, fallen sick and they were shown no compassion for, for a long time. And uh, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but in the very last uh, part of the book, uh, uh, I, I, uh, I bring forward my uncle who died of AIDS-related illnesses in 1993. Mm. So the book is dedicated to him and, and, and all the Icelandic men who, who suffered the same fate. So that is, this is, you know, this is, this is what the book is also about, you know. It's about how uh, society expects total compassion uh, in, in the hour of need, but then is quite selective with its own compassion when it comes to, uh, com comes to different parts of its family, big family. And I think, again, just listening to both of you talking in that way, what, I mean, there's no way that you could call um, either books, that you can no way say, say they've got happy endings, but there is a happy ending to a certain degree because of the resilience and the overcoming of this adversity. Um, and that's also through what you've written. The fact that you've created these books um, is also a form of happy end. I, 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 if, if that's too much of a positive um, take No, I think you're right. I mean, I think the very fact that a book has been written mm -hmm. about uh, the fate of, of, of a character who has been rejected, of, rejected by society and history mm -hmm. uh, is an act of hope. It's, 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 mm -hmm. In itself is, is, uh, is uh, um, an act of justice, yes. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that? Even though it's... Even though it's yes, yeah. sure, sure. Mm. I mean, my, my, my main character um, is... Um, <clears throat> he, he actually survives. And, you, and you, uh, of course, you can, you can put a, um, some sort of moral... I mean, morality on the... Most, most of the people who, who, who were put there didn't survive. Yes. But he, he actually did survive because of his innocence, because his what you would say, street smartness, his, his ability to, to get around, all the things he was maybe in some sort of way punished for because he didn't converge to the norm, mm -hmm. right? So, but, but there's also this resilience this, this in him, this, this, which is really translated as his humanity, which, which, which is impossible, actually impossible to put down. There are certain things in a kid you cannot put down. And this is this is what basically makes the kid a human being, and and, and he's kind of crushed. He's crushed like a cartoon. He's crushed many, many times. A cartoon. I mean, the rabbit or something is smashed yes. to pieces, and you know, brought to this chamber and done this with, and and then kind of kind of pops up again, and then he runs away, and he's dragged back, you know, by his feet, and he kind of punished again, and then he goes off again and again and again, and he actually spends one year on on on. Uh, on, on the run yes. in the, in the le, le, latter part of the war and he's brought into to, 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 a, to, a, to a prison camp and then he's brought into safety in Germany and he escapes from that too, you know. And in the end he actually stays, I mean, eight, an 80-year-old man and he actually, this is, the, this is when the, the funeral takes place in 2003 and he says, okay, I don't go there. I stand beside the river Danube and I watch the, watch, watch the water go by because I don't have to go to the funeral. I've already been there, you know. Mm. So, so, so the book ends on that note. You, I mean, there are some things in a human being that you cannot simply put down. That's it. Absolutely. And that's the feeling I had mm. at the end of both. I mean, the other thing which, which we must talk about very briefly, and we'll get some questions from you, um, all of you, is that is the, the language and the beauty of the language. I mean, you, you are both very great writers, and I mean that so sincerely. I don't know how you managed to find the perfect language that you did for this book, but it's, it's, it is perfect. And I wondered how, how, you, how you managed to write, how you managed to find the language to write this story. Oh, uh, I... I, 
I think the language is already there. I think the most important thing when you write about these things is to never be sentimental. Just look things in the eye and describe what you see. And if you do that without trying to shy away, without trying to, to uh, per per perceive uh, what kind of reaction this will evoke in the potential reader uh, and get nervous and anxious for that reason, just try to describe it. And if you get up very close to people also and describe them as real people, uh, the reader will always f also feel them as real. And then there is an intimacy in that kind of description. Uh, and this intimacy will translate also as empathy to the reader. You will feel with the characters in a way. And, 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 but, but if you sentimentalize, you short circuit everything. And this will not get true. So this is, uh, this, this, at least for me, was the most important thing. Never, never, never do anything than describe what's actually there and, and try to describe it as it looks or as it feels. And thinking about I was trying to find a passage which is the moment when I realized that this is, it didn't, I think it's right at the beginning, I, I, this is a truly beautiful novel as opposed to just a, a harrowing and difficult story. It is pure poetry and the colors, this is one thing I hadn't noticed so much about your, your novels before, is your, is your perception of color. There's a lot of color in here. And it's not just red, which of course I would have gone to, which is my favorite color, but it's um, with, the, with the volcano, right? The erupting the volcano and all the colors and, and so on too. And this is such a pared down, slim novel about three or four very, very big subjects. And I wonder, did you write a very long novel and then pare it back? No, it, I, I, it, from the beginning, I knew that I was, I was writing a, a short novel. Mm. And, uh, and uh, the, the job was to take all the, all, the, all the research material I had, you know, and, and boil it down into this, uh, into this uh, perfect little uh, cube of stock. <laughs> that you can then uh, boil in your brain and, uh, and, and get all the colors out of, you know, yes. Yeah, but I, I, I agree with, uh, with, with Steve on, 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 um, on uh, that you can never allow yourself to be sentimental. And uh, I think uh, in, uh, in, a, in a novel where the character is facing hardship, uh, the, the main character is the character that you can never be kind to. You can be kind to everyone around him, but you can never be kind to your main character. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's have some of your questions now. We've got a microphone, if you'd be kind of to wait for the microphone, and if anybody has any questions, um, we'd love to hear them. Um, question over there, thank you. Just one sec. Uh, hi, um, I've never read it in your, your book, Stephen, was it? Yes. Yeah, sorry, yes, hi. Steve. I haven't read any of your books. I must be fascinated by the subject matter. Mm. Um, they do seem particularly hard reads, though, mind you. Uh, particularly that second book's rather thick as well. Um, yeah. Is there anything uplifting about the human spirit as you go on through the book, or is it a hard read, one could expect? I mean, I, 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 you, you will be surprised, but I consider this a very uplifting book. I agree. I, I mean, agree. Uh, yeah. I, okay, okay. It's, it's, not, it's not the nicest places you want to be. Uh, the, and of course, I mean, there's a lot of bad things happening to 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 to, to the children here, but but I, I, the, the emphasis on, on my books is always put on the hardship. But but the hardships are there in order to prove something about the human spirit and the humankind. I mean, I don't write about hardships just to prove that hardship is hard to bear, but 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 something shines true of it, it breaks through in, during these conditions. And that is what fascinates me, to, 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 get, to try to get a hold of that and, and, and see what comes out. And, and people who are in, in this situation can re react in many different ways, but there's a lot of goodness coming out too, and resilience and so on. And I consider that to be a very optimistic, I mean, I personally consider this to be a very optimistic book. But of course, there's a lot of things you have to take along the way, but, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. And on kindness, I mean, 
we are not kind to the main characters. You bring the kindness, of course. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> and, the, and the understanding and the, yeah. the warmth, I think. Any, any other questions? Lady here. Thank you. Uh, yes, I, I, was, I happened to be in Vienna earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And we, I was in a group, and we were taken by our guide to what, in fact, turned out to be Spiegelgrund to see the church at the top of the hill that you oh, mentioned really? in your reading because yes. it is a secession church. It is a remarkable piece of architecture and art. Mm. And I had not at that point read your book. Mm. And our guide and the guide who took us around the church were both um, extremely positive about the place and they mm. described it as a hospital and is there are wonderful grounds, as you describe in your book, with mm. trees and grass and these mm. buildings scattered around, and it all looks quite idyllic. Really? And then I came back and I read your book, and I realized that this place that had been shown off to us was the place where all these dreadful things had happened. And I felt really angry um, I happened also to be in Vienna at the time that the, this, all this political upheaval was going on. And I felt that there was an incredible dishonesty hmm. in um, what, were, what was being shown. And there would have been no harm in being honest. I, I'm interested in what you think. Thank you. Oh. This comes as a shock to me, really. I'm very, very glad you told me this, because I didn't know. And doesn't this go to prove something? Mm. I mean, uh, as, as you say, uh, the, the church, that's also part of my, my first, it's a beautiful Otto Wagner uh, secessionist church, uh, one of the most beautiful in Vienna. But. Um, it was actually put there uh, for the for the for the patients at the at, at at the clinic, so the light light would be let in and everything. And of course, you can t talk about this in a very positive positive regard. You, you know, everything was done for the welfare of the patients, even the the pews. You say that in English, yes. right? Do you pews? Very uh, good. <laughs> yeah, they they they're not as pews in 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 Protestantic Swedish church with hard corners. The pews were kind of, they have these rounded corners in the church so that the mentally ill or the, those who had the tendency for epileptic, you know, fits. fits, if something happened to them, they, they would not have their heads crushed on the sides of the pews. So the pews were rounded like this. And, and, and it would be easy to get in and out of the church. Of course, and this is the irony about it, everything was thought out during the, 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 the first part of the 20th century to be to the benefit of the patient, the mental patient in himself was the, was the subject of all this care and caretaking. So everything, the social structure, everything was put into place and everything was ordered and, and well done and taken care for. And what happens in 1938, which obviously you were not at all told about, everything was, since everything was there, it was just for the Nazis to, to go in. And they had the patient records, and since it was taken note of everything, because if, if a woman had a, had a child who had some problems, it was taken note of, and the only thing the, the Nazis had to do was to go and grab the kid and put him there. So I, I, I'm completely amazed and perplexed by, by what you say. It's very interesting to take that back and discuss Yeah, yeah well, and, and, and can I ask you back, you weren't even show the monument for the children that's actually there in the speaker ground? Uh, the, the, so you weren't shown Absolutely the not. Because nowadays there is a beautiful monument in no. just two blocks down from the church, no. uh, which is made of, um, of small pillars of light, 78, no, 789. That's the amount was of, that the number of children, children were killed. 
And they are, when, when you go there in daylight, which I imagine you would have, you wouldn't yes. see them much because they're covered with rose bushes and so on. But when the, when the, when the sun sets behind the hill, hills, it will get dark. And this monument kind of collects the light of the, of, of, of the sun from, from, from the preceding day. And when the night falls, all these pillars of light come to light. So you see the paradox, you see the night falls, shadow comes, and 70, 789, excuse me, pillars of light rise from the darkness. It's so beautiful, it takes your breath away. And you weren't even shown that. And you should be the one doing the tours, because this is pretty <laughs> shocking. Uh, um, anyway, I'm We're very glad you told yes, me about it. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so you. much. That was a, a great contribution. Any, we have time for one more question. Um, I just I just want to ask Sean very quickly also about this um, issue of how we how we deal with the past because I was wondering I mean to what extent were you in Iceland aware of I mean, because Iceland was always in speech marks cut off I mean how much of your history was how, how much of their history was known um, you, I mean the First World War and Second World War what was Iceland doing well. Uh, we always say that we live north of war. <laughs> so uh, the great uh, events of the big world, uh, they hardly touch us. And, uh, and uh, what happened in 1918 is, is a very good example of uh, that not being true, because in the very, very last days of uh, the Great War, uh, Iceland was hooked into the nar narrative uh, with the Spanish flu. Until, until uh, November uh, 1918, Iceland hadn't uh, known the First World War except through shortages of coal, but what was worse, shortages of coffee. Uh, <laughs> but like I say, at the very end, we became a part of that story mm -hmm. through, through the Spanish influenza epidemic. In the Second World War, of course, uh, we were brought into the narrative uh, by the Brits because Iceland was invaded uh, by, the, by, by the British. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, the British stayed there for a few years. And, and, uh, and uh, there are some stories to tell about that. <laughs> it, was a very, it was a very friendly invasion, I must say. Uh, in the morning, when, 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 people, when people started hearing that there was an invasion, uh, the first thing was, of course, that everybody was very happy that it was the Brits and not the Germans. <laughs> and then the British boats started coming in, uh, in, in, in from the bay and to the harbor. And they hadn't uh, planned for exporting the soldiers from the harbor to the outskirts of the, of the city and to secure the places uh, they needed to secure. So what, what were they to do? Well, they asked around, you know, are there some cars? And, the taxi drivers of Reykjavik were, of course, very happy to take them wherever they wanted to be taken, and of course they charged them. And from that day on, the, the, the Brits uh, didn't get a thing done without paying full price and more. <laughs> so the first day was really a great day for the taxi drivers of Reykjavik, when they were driving the British soldiers all around the town and to the outskirts of Reykjavik. So that's, that was how we were brought into that narrative. Yes. Thank you. Um, oh, we have one question. Have we got time for one question? How are we doing? Yeah? Go on, Eleanor. <laughs> Thank you. One more question. Might be a one word answer. Oh. <laughs> 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 you know. Hi, you're probably aware that um, Britain has been overtaken by Scandinavian and hold Icelandic. It up, hold it up to your mouth, yeah. uh, you may well be aware that Britain has been overtaken by Scandinavian and Icelandic television drama series. Has this interest sort of expanded into their literature? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It's true. That's what's so interesting about it. It is, it's all part of a package, really. Isn't it? It's all happening simultaneously. Well, before the Nordic crime, there was, of course, uh, Strindberg and Hamsun and uh, Laxness and Selma Lagerlöf. And they these had people. a Nobel Prize winner. Yes, yes. In Iceland. Yes, we, we do in the North. I think we all have Nobel Prize winners, of course. Mm -hmm. yes. So before, before the, the, the crime, of course, there was some awareness of, of great literature from the North. Then you had the crime wave. And uh, now you've got the 
now you've got Steve and me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is great testament to, exactly. <laughs> to, the, to the opening of Iceland, I think, that you're here. Um, we must uh, sadly finish here, but um, the... the um, the, the boys, my boys, <laughs> they'll Rose's be guys. <laughs> my Rose's boys, and yeah. um, they will both be signing books in the book um, bookshop. So please buy these books. And I must say, just one thing to support this idea of, you know, how you write literature about difficult events, because when you have great writers, these events become great literature. And I sometimes I feel guilty for loving a difficult book because the writing is so beautiful. But you've given me permission to love your book because the writing is so beautiful. The, the story may be hard, but the writing, the story, the humanity that comes out in both these books is exceptional. And you can have your money back if you don't, if you don't believe me. No, um, you can't. No, you can't. But I'll be, I'll don't be back. Don't offer too much. <laughs> I would like you, please, to um, put your hands together for these two great writers and great people, Sion and Steve Semsandberg. And thank you to Eleanor and the team. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.